from the Gospel of Matthew, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning. This morning we are going to be talking about living as salt and light, a holy lives for the sake of others so that they may know God. But before we do, I have a little something that I want to bring before you. Um, one of the things that my kids and, and I enjoy when we go to restaurants, you know those little menus they give for kids with crayons and you have things you can draw on and little games you can play? Uh, one of the ones that we enjoy are the ones where they have two nearly identical pictures and you have to spot the difference between the two. You all know the one I'm talking about? Like circle, circle the difference? Uh, we're going to do that this morning very briefly and it's to, it's to underline the point of the sermon. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to read you a very, very brief section of the Bible, and I want you to listen closely. You ready? It's from Matthew 28, where Jesus commissions the church to live out its purpose. So here we go. And you've heard this before. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Y'all got that one locked away? All right, next round. Ready? I'm going to be brief. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you spot the difference? Don't raise your hand. We're not Baptists. Just give me a knowing look. I can see it from here. Did you spot the difference? The difference is one word in Greek, but it changes the entire meaning of it. You ready? It's this, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, or observe. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That changes the idea of it, and, and this, is, this, is, this is what I mean. It makes all the difference in how we approach sermons on Sunday morning. It makes all the difference in how we approach Bible studies, even our hymnody, teaching them to obey. It's tempting in our information age to imagine that knowing all the right answers will solve all of our problems. That education is the, uh, is the solution to all of our difficulties, but learning more without obedience is pointless because you're just learning more about things you're not planning to obey. And you don't become salt and light by gathering more information. If I were to give this sermon a title without fear of infringement, I would just say, I would say it's just do it. Right? They might come after me. Um, this might come as a shock to you seeing me now, but I actually know a fair bit about exercise. Yeah, it's not that funny, okay? I cry money. Um, it is. I was, I was in varsity weightlifting starting my freshman year of high school. My brother is... Uh, a certified personal trainer and an incredibly good one at that, and we would exercise together for about a decade. And I would happily, if you pulled me aside, tell you all of the benefits about exercise and proper form and what you should be doing, but would you really listen to me? No, yeah, right? Probably not. And why should you? Right? I haven't exercised since my sons have been born. But, but imagine, if you will, that I was in incredible shape. And I didn't have a body of knowledge or systems or theories to bring to you about it. 
or even a self-awareness that I was in decent shape. Wouldn't you be curious then? Wouldn't you ask, like, what do you, what do, you do? What do you, how do you maintain that physique? You know, after all, even Forrest Gump had a huge gathering of runners, didn't he, that followed him around. You know, our text for this morning is not about knowing more, but about being more. So that by our good works, others would come to know God as their Father, glorify Him, and share in eternal life. It's no small stakes. So with that, let's get to our actual passage. This is Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20, and you can read it in your bulletins. Uh, What's happening here in our passage is Jesus is giving the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. You're all familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's his most famous sermon. It's several chapters long in the book of Matthew, and he's going to launch into some really difficult teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is hard. It says things like, if you're angry, that's the same thing as committing murder. If you look inappropriately at a woman, that's the same thing as physical adultery. Well, those are hard lessons, aren't they? And so Jesus knows these are hard lessons. These are stringent calls for holiness. And so before he goes into his sermon, he gives us the whole why, why we ought to live holy lives. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that this is the second time that someone was sent from God to a mountain to receive the law and give that law to the people so that by living that law, they would point other people to God. You all know who I'm talking about, right? Moses. This is the second time this, this, this has occurred. However, the first time, as we know from the Old Testament, the Israelites didn't do so well, did they? Instead of being a light to other nations, they ended up being focused around themselves and looked inward. In fact, you see, by the end of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they're even forbidden from, from marrying other people because it would dilute and pollute their faith. They didn't succeed. And so, you imagine Jesus knows this going into uh, this, this, the beginning of an even harder law, and so it might be why He begins with a warning in verse 13. That's what this is, verse 13. It's a warning. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt, by the way, it's not is lost its taste, it's is defiled. In Greek, it's defiled. But if salt is defiled, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What happened to Israel? They were conquered by the Assyrians and then the Persians and cast out of their land. So what does it mean when we consider this term being salt of the earth? Well, when we think of salt, we think of it as a seasoning, right? And so you hear Jesus saying, you know, Christians, you're that seasoning on top of the world, right? You take a, a pretty decent meal and you really draw out its flavor, right? That, you're the sprinkling on top of the world. You're the salt. But that's not the primary use of salt in the ancient world, is it? Salt was a preservative, an incredibly necessary and important preservative because if they didn't have freezers back then, you couldn't just take your fish or your meat and throw it in a freezer. If you wanted to keep it from decaying, you would have to rub salt in it so that it maintained its integrity so it didn't decay, and it slowed the decaying process. And so for Christians to be salt of the earth, it's for us to live in such a way that by the witness of our lives, we stave off the moral decay of our society. It's an enormous task. 
I don't know how many of you heard, but there was a football game last Sunday, uh, something called the Super Bowl. There were uh, 62,000 people that fit into the stadium. Over 100 million people watched it on TV. That's a lot of people. And like I feel like it's just kind of par for the course for Super Bowls these days, what made the news more than the game itself was the halftime show. Right? Anybody hear about this? Moral outrage on both sides, you know? Why, why do you have people wearing hardly anything at all, dancing on poles with, you know, little girls around them? Why do you care? You know, you're, you're puritanical. And so there's this whole outrage thing that's going on this week. And, and, and those who were outra uh, outraged about it took to social media post facto with the whole someone ought to do something me message. But you know what's interesting? 70% of the people in America would identify themselves as Christians if you asked them which means that 43,800 people in the stadium that day would have identified as Christians if you asked them. What would have happened if during the halftime show, all of the Christians just got up and went to the concession stands for a snack and avoided the whole spectacle? That would say something, wouldn't it? You wouldn't need to be outraged. You wouldn't need to shame the world because Paul calls us in 1 Corinthians 5.12 that Christians are not to judge those outside of the church, but, are, but to our judge ourselves. That would send a message, wouldn't it? What if people who are watching the ratings, the executives, 100 million people, and all of a sudden 70 million of them change the channel for half an hour and then come back on? Wouldn't that be interesting? What if and this is crazy, right? You can, you can deride me as a Puritan later. What if parents and grandparents who are watching with their families decided to use that time as a teaching moment to instruct their kids about the importance of modesty and the fact that we don't find our worth by having people ogle us? Wouldn't that be fascinating? You know, again, you might think I'm being puritanical, that I'm being too strict or unrealistic for the modern world. You know, get with the times, Father. But I would remind you that every age has its virtues and its vices. Every age has opportunities for Christians to either get sucked up with the culture or to stand apart. In the medieval period, for example, it was a time of great cruelty. Right? A thief might lose his hand for a first offense of stealing. Gossips were put in stocks or made to wear these um, grotesque masks. Uh, my wife and I went to St. Uh, Augustine for our anniversary. And I decided to use part of that time to go to the medieval torture museum. I didn't bring her because that'd be a terrible date. Uh, but, but I was curious, right? So I go into this place. It's a dark place. But you learn about the cruelty of that age. However, however, it was also a period of great courage, of great temperance, of chastity. And while we might condemn them for their cruelty... They would look contemptuously on us for our timidity, for our worldliness, immodesty, our softness. You see, Christians are moral, like we're preservatives of the world. It's our job to take our Christian values and instruction from what Jesus has called us to do and how he has called us to live, and those don't change from age to age. They don't. You know, on the shores of the Dead Sea, great salt deposits form. 
And we all know, right, Dead Sea is incredibly salty. I hope to go there someday and just float at the top of the water. I've seen, you, I've seen some of you in pictures. It looks fascinating to me. But what, one of the things about the Dead Sea is great salt deposits form on the shore. And people would go and gather these salt deposits, right, and use them for preservatives and, and seasoning, all sorts of things. But there's another mineral called gypsum that forms crystals and would also enter into the salt on the shores of the Dead Sea. And you couldn't tell the difference between a pure salt pile or one that had gypsum in it, but if you were to take one that had too much gypsum, the salt would become defiled. It was no longer pure. In fact, it wasn't good for anything. It wasn't good for seasoning. It wasn't good to be used to preserve your meat. It, didn't, it, it lost its purpose. No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Too much syncretism, too much intermixing of the world's culture and Christian culture, and our witness becomes worthless. Would you say that, that in post-Christian America, in post-Christendom, that by and large, Christians retain the moral high ground in the view of the eyes of the world? What do you think? What do you think? And this is, this is a hard thing. And I, now, first of all, I'm not saying that we're worthless in God's eyes. That is, that is not what this passage is talking about. It says that our witness is defiled. You know, we're, we're living this out, out now. Um, 80% of Christians know each other in a biblical sense. There's a wink there. You know what I'm saying. Before marriage, and 88% of atheists do. 65% of Christians give to church or charity. Almost 60% of atheists 32% of Christians suffer divorce. 33% of atheists. There's a whole list of statistics that we can go down to say, you know, we're having a hard time by and large. Those who claim themselves to be Christian, who bear the mantle, who would call themselves that if you asked. And the only discernible difference that I found in studies of those who, and again, I'm not talking about people who know Jesus and who regularly attend church and are really invested in the faith. I'm just talking about those who bear the title I think Father Chris referred to them as nominal. Um, the only di discernible difference was found in this study called the Good Samaritan Study. And the Good Samaritan Study found that those, who, those people who would identify themselves as Christians perceive themselves to be more moral, but in situational ethics don't bear that out. Isn't that heartbreaking? It is to me. On the whole, Christians aren't doing the best job of retaining our saltiness, so what are we going to do about it? What can we do? Well, look with me uh, at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. As many of you know, I'm the chaplain for our preschool here at Trinity. We're rounding the corner of our first year. And uh, I have to tell you, that's probably the fav my favorite part of the job is being in there in chapel with twos and threes and four-year-olds and, and uh, you know, singing with them and talking about Jesus. Well, we have a favorite song that we do at chapel, and the, and the kids all know that it's coming because all I have to do is, you know, I pretend to be looking for it, and, and, and then I find it, and I pull out my light, right? And then they all find their lights, you know, it might be in your neighbor's ear, right? It might be like in your shoe, but everybody pulls out their light, and we sing a song. You know, what's, you know where I'm going with this, right? Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I know a lot of you are worried about that. I'm not going to do that. But, you, but you, know, you know the song, this little light of mine, right? I'm going to 
let it shine, right? And, and we have a blast doing it. We all hold up our lights really high, you know, hide it under a bushel. No, right? You didn't do that. Let Satan blow it out. No, of course not, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And yeah, it's a cheesy song, right? It's, it, it's, it's geared towards kids. It's a silly song. But there's a level of profundity to it. You know, if each of these preschoolers grows up and realizes that they have a light, a light from God, that, that, and, and they make a commitment to let it shine forth, then it becomes profound. Then it becomes meaningful. Then it becomes impactful. You know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'm not going to sit back, for example, in despair, wringing my hands about where the culture is headed. I'm not going to let the tone of my moral outrage drown out the truthfulness of my words. I'm not going to take cues about how Christ called me to live from the surrounding culture. And you know what? Brothers and sisters, this world is in need of Christians to live as its salt and light. And needs it. Salt and light were the two most important elements in the ancient world. Even the Roman historian Pliny said, there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. These are two necessary ingredients to the world. And if it isn't the light of our good works that lead others to God, which is the point, they will follow artificial light to ruin. I grew up in New Smyrna Beach uh, for the summers. We had a, a, our family has a condo out there, and so I'd go out there for about three months out of the year, every year. And uh, one of the things that we were all so excited about is when sea turtles would come up to the beach, and they would dig nests, right, and they would lay their eggs. You all familiar with this? And then somebody would come and mark out the sea turtle mounds, you know, don't step on those. And if we were really fortunate, we would, we would be able to experience when the, when the little turtles come up and they hatch, and they dig their ways to the surface, Right? And it was always really exciting. No flashlights allowed, right? You all just kind of tried to stay out of their way, but you watched them try to find their way to the sea. Well, years ago, there was a problem in New Smyrna Beach because the lights from the condos and the, light, the artificial lights from, uh, you know, from the surrounding area and people with flashlights would outpower the brightness of the moon. And the reason that was a problem is because sea turtles need to see the moon to know where the ocean is. They look at the reflection of the moon off the water, and they say, that's the ocean, that's where I need to go to survive, to find life. And so they would go towards the ocean. But if, if, the, if the moon wasn't bright enough, if it was not the brightest thing in the sky, sea turtles would get confused, they would get lost, and they would be eaten by raccoons and birds and crabs and all sorts of things. They'd, they'd never make it to where they need to find life. I think you see my point. The world greatly needs us Christians to reflect the light of God. You know, I'm going to close with this. If we want to do that, you know, again, just do it, right? Don't come here to pick up more information, but, but learn, you know, what it is to live as a Christian. Listen to a sermon for how might I apply this, not what new information or entertainment might I gain from it. If we are to do this, if we want our light to shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, we have to keep going back to the source of light. In the church, we have this enormous candle that we, break, that we bring out for baptisms and for Easter, right? It's called the Paschal Candle. And the Paschal Candle symbolizes the light of Christ. And you'll notice that when we do baptisms, each Christian that comes forward to be baptized is given their own baptismal candle, right? A smaller candle. 
And you'll see me kind of awkwardly take that candle and, you know, I'm not very tall, so try to light right the top of our Paschal candle to get that candle lit. Well, what am I doing? What, what does that symbolize? Where, where, what is the source of this person's light? It's the light of Christ. It's the light of Christ. And so if we want to live as Christians, if we want to live differently than the world, we have to keep going back to the source. We have to go back to the source in prayer, in community, in the sacrament, in Scripture. You know, we're the light of the world, but I don't know about you, but I can only fit so much oil into my jar. My wick is only so tall. And so it's incumbent upon us to come back here week after week to approach the sacrament, to spend time in prayer and in Scripture so that we can be filled with the light of Christ and point people to Him. So join me in continuing to come before the throne of grace and let our light shine so that people, in the people and places that God has put before us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the author of life and the source of all light and all that is good and all that is holy. I pray that you would continue to draw us to yourself that we might, by basking in your light, reflect that light to the world around us so that it may see us and see you through us and be drawn into your presence, that we would save them by, from ruin and destruction and usher them into eternal life. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.